Well, here we are at Mark chapter 7. It has been a while, uh, but nevertheless, we do want to finish these Mark deep dives. And once again, as always, uh, full honour and credit to Dr. Rick Watts, who really is the person who has informed these deep dives uh, largely and been his research rather than mine, um, Dr. Rick Watts, who is a uh, professor at Alpha Crucis, who has taught at Regent Seminary in Vancouver, received his doctorate from Cambridge, all round a genius, but um, also the most humble man that you could meet. So here we go, Mark chapter 7, deep dive, starting at verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, pause, so the scribes from Jerusalem are back. We haven't seen them since chapter 3 when they were accusing Jesus of being the prince of demons. Um, yikes. <laughs> and here is the same language of that chapter when they were gathering to him then. Back then they were talking about fasting, crucial to Israel's identity, and now they're about to go to him on another crucial instruction, that of purity rituals. Consider this verse from Psalm chapter 2, verse 2, something that we would completely miss without consideration of and placing Mark in the narrative of Israel's scriptures. It says this, The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Mark chapter 7, verse 2. They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Um, obviously not in COVID season. Verse 3, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. I don't know what a dining couch is. Verse 5. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? General question. But eat with defiled hands. Specific question. Let me ask those questions again. General question. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? So it's very broad. But eat with defiled hands. And, and this is the specific outworking that they're talking about. And what's going on here is that they've taken an instruction from Exodus chapter 30, verse 18 to 21, and added to it, made it more stringent, made it more difficult and arduous, which is what they do. They've gone again beyond Torah. You see, this was only intended, this ritual purity for the Levites, but they love to add to the rules. Verse 6, and he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is korban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Okay, that's a big passage. But essentially Jesus is going for it. He's had enough. He calls them out. In chapters 2 and 3, we see his confrontations with them and his questions of them, his sayings about them, his warning towards them, but he's not mincing words, not at all. In Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13, it says, And the Lord said, Because these people draw near to me with their mouth and honour me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, 
and their fear of me is a commandment taught by them by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people. Read terrible things with wonder upon wonder and the wisdom of their wise shall perish and the discernment of their discerning will be hidden. Well, that is exactly what is going on here. And this is the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 6. So Jesus, when heading into the parables, uses the language from Isaiah chapter 6 when explaining it to his disciples. That's after the first showdown with the teachers from Jerusalem. Now, after the second showdown with the teachers from Jerusalem, he uses the language of Isaiah 29, which is the fulfillment of chapter 6. This is like it still ties together. It's brilliant. They're hypocrites. This is the teachers of the law. They're hypocrites. They've abandoned God in their hearts. And think about verse 8 and think about the implications of it. They set aside the commandments of men to establish their tradition. Stop just a minute. Think about this. What has to happen in order for you to elevate your own traditions to the commandments of God? You have to be in idolatry. That's what that is. You have idolized your own commandments. It's easy to assess and judge the teachers of the law here and say, wow, how arrogant. Now, let's just take a second to assess ourselves. Is there something that you hold on to so hard that you elevate it to the commands of God? You can actually see by how you get hung up on something, offended over something when it's challenged. So when something's challenged, the degree to which you get offended over it could potentially be the degree to which you have idolized it. You might even ground it in the word of God, but really you're holding fast to your own preferences. Think about what we hold on to in church. How much is a tradition? So much. But so long as we don't elevate that to the same as the commandments of God, the tradition's okay. But we can't. We can't say this is what God wants if it's just tradition. Verse 8 says that you set aside the commandments of God. It's this picture of, oh, that doesn't really suit me. I'm going to quietly put that one aside. I believe we live in an age where this is done all the time. The discovery of the importance of historical context of the word of God, including authorship, audience, etc., that's all brought with it incredible insight and help. However, it has also made us aware of the human element. And that's great. For the longest time, I didn't even think about that. I was like, God was whispering in someone's ear as they, in a trance, went off with their pen. And let's face it, they didn't even have pens. <laughs> I completely discounted the human element of the Bible. But we must be careful that we don't elevate the human element of the Bible either. Consider it. Yes, please, let's do that. But let's not elevate it to the point where we completely humanize it and take out the spirit of God factor. If we do that, it makes it all too easy to set aside whatever we find tricky or difficult or not to our liking, where we just say that's part of the human element and we're easily setting that aside. So moving on, verse 9, and On's context is honouring your parents. Laid out in Exodus sorry, chapter 20, verse 12, and Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 16, which outlined the commandment, honour your father and mother, the commandment with a promise that you'll live in the land. Stay tuned for the meaning of that. Now, this concept of Corban was where people would dedicate something to God, but what Jesus is reprimanding them for is that people would dedicate it to God so that they wouldn't have to give it to their parents. But once they did, if they decided they had second thoughts, the priest would say, oh, no, 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 you devoted this to God. You can't have it back. The obligations to take care of your parents in that culture was paramount. You did not forsake your parents. That was completely disrespectful. Even if you were poor, you were still instructed to take care of your parents. 
in fact, in Jeremiah, the exile is prophesied about because they didn't honor their parents. So they could not live long in the land and were exiled to another land. You know, honestly, in, in my life, I've always read it as that you honor your father and mother so that you can live a long time. But no, it, it was talking about living long in the land that God had given them to possess. Maybe there are implications for a long life, but, but certainly here they were exiled out of the land that God had promised that they would possess because they didn't honor their parents. Part of their exile consequences because they weren't looking after their parents. Honoring our parents is akin to honoring God. So what does Jesus do to amend this error? To call out the wrong that has been committed? He goes to what's behind it. Jesus is always concerned with the heart. And for us, he's the same. He always, always goes to the heart of the matter, which is always our heart. Verse 14. And he called the people to him again. He's addressing this publicly. And said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. This is the Shema. Hear, O Israel, listen and obey. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. It is vital for them to get this, to get it in a way that has an outworking. Verse 15. There is nothing outside a person that going that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. When we are talking about defilement, we are talking in terms of holiness and separation. The rabbis understand that they are devoted to God. They are set apart for God. So Jesus challenge of this instruction goes to the heart of who they are, their identity, and challenges the validity of what they're placing their hope in, their pride in, their view of themselves in. You see, our view of our own holiness, once it becomes an idol, what we worship, what we trust in, that's not cool. Verse 17, and when he had entered the house and left the people back to the typical place of privacy and instruction for the inner circle in the book of Mark, it's in the house, his disciples asked him about the parable. We're getting here again this typical issue with the disciples where they're just not picking up what Jesus is putting down. They always need further explanation. What do we take from this? Well, we certainly shouldn't see them as dum-dums, but we should try to see ourselves in them and our propensity for blindness. This should caution us, should make us incredibly grateful for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who Jesus promised would guide us into all truth. That's why I said it's better for him to go so that he could send the helper, the advocate, who will indwell all believers and that we will be able to continue on with strength. So that's how important it was for Jesus to go and for the Holy Spirit to come so that we could be guided into truth. And also even here, though Jesus shows frustration, he always condescends to explain to them what's necessary. Also in Mark, remember that the disciples are another analogy of those who aren't seeing clearly yet. Verse 18, and he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. So saying you eat food, it goes into your digestive system and you poop it out. It's got nothing to do with what's making you clean or unclean. So remember Mark knew Peter and Paul. He knew their um, what was going to be expounded upon in Paul's writings and Peter's writings. And Peter's showing that the teachings that they're teaching, they are what um, Jesus had intended all along. Verse 20. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. We can see this clearly now. 
we have to understand what is happening here. Jesus is redefining Torah. He's showing that one greater than the law is here. The only person who can redefine the law is the one who gave it to Moses in the first place. Hang on. Like this, this, uh, like we know it, but, but it's mind-blowing. Let me say it again. The only person who can redefine the law is the one who gave it to Moses in the first place. Jesus is Yahweh among us on the earth. And so this, in the redefinition, he does not negate holiness. Holiness is being set apart. So for the Jews, that's a massive part of their national identity. They're Yahweh's. They're set apart from him, apart from all the other nations. And Yahweh among us, Jesus, in his redefinition, says that being set apart is still necessary. We might not feel comfortable with that in our all-inclusive postmodernistic culture where standing apart can be seen to be judgmental and not loving but we don't go, we don't get to define what love looks like. God is love and he tells us what it looks like, not the other way around. So holiness, being set apart is still vitally important, but now it's a heart condition, not an outward purification ritual. And having redefined holiness, having redefined purity, he can now go to the Gentile regions. Ritual purity is no longer the issue. Verse 24, and from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Firstly, let's just reorientate ourselves with the book of Mark and remember that the setup is in chapter 1 and it quotes Isaiah 40 verse 3 about the one who has a way made for him in the wilderness. Then in Mark chapter 1 verse 10, the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus at baptism and Isaiah 42 verse 1 says that the Lord has put his spirit upon him to administer justice to the nations. And then the proclamation in Leviticus that you shall be holy because I am holy. It's your interaction with me that causes you to be set apart. And Jesus has just declared that it's a heart matter. That is the context of him now bringing salvation to the Gentiles. He is heading into Gentile territory. And Tyre is one of Israel's bitterest enemies. You can read Ezekiel 27, 28 in your own time to see prophecy against Tyre and another in Isaiah chapter 23. You can say what you like. I'm grateful for Tyre's. That was a moment of comic relief. I'll give you a moment to regain your composure so you can continue to listen. Sorry. Uh, we're continuing on in verse 24. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. There's some legitimate speculation around why this would be. Is it because he needs rest? Maybe. Is it because he's avoiding conflict, which he's just had a fair bit? Maybe. But it goes on and says, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. We've seen this before in chapter 5, and, and the, the contrast is astounding. You see, in chapter 5, Jairus came and fell down at his feet. And the woman with the issue of blood, who after Jesus stood around yelling, Who touched me? Who touched me? came and fell down at his feet. Remember, this is an appropriate response for those who come to Jesus. If we're not willing to fall down at his feet, what else will we, will we be not willing to do? But 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 think about it. A, a synagogue ruler in Jairus and now this woman who has an unclean spirit in her daughter and is from a region that's an enemy of Israel uh, doing the same thing. Verse 26 now, the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of the border, out of her daughter. Out of the border, where did that come from? 
it's all the border closures. Um, here again, we have a woman, like the woman with the issue of blood, crossing the social and now religious constructs, the barriers of race, ritual purity, gender. They're all coming down. And that is because Jesus is ushering in Galatians 3.28, that there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, because you're all one in Christ Jesus. And further, Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, there's no Jew nor Greek, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So good. Verse 27, and he said to her, let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Whoa, whoa, Jesus, whoa. In anyone's mind, calling a woman a dog is not cool. So we need to examine why on earth Jesus would say such a thing. At first, we need to understand God's consistent heart. You might not have realized, but we read in Exodus chapter 12, verse 38, that when the children of Israel were delivered from Egypt, that a mixed multitude went with them. I did not know this. Like I've read it, but I didn't know it. <laughs> And when, so, so, so they get delivered from Egypt, but actually more than just Israel, the children of Israel, went. When David lists his besties in 2 Samuel 23, verse 38 to 39, that list includes many nationalities, the man after God's own heart. It's awesome. Our God is inclusive. That's his heart. However, we can read in scriptures many times when the dogs are those outside. And God has always been clear about his mission. It's Israel first, then the nations. Paul even follows suit in Romans 9, 11. Even though he goes to the Gentiles, he makes it clear that Israel gets first dibs. But they reject Yahweh and the inclusion continues. Jesus says, let the children be fed first. Let's see how the woman responds. Verse 28, she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Yep. And she's been able to see what even the disciples are not getting. They, as you might recall, don't understand about the loaves. But the Jews have been fed. There were 12 basketfuls of leftovers. And this woman says, let us have the leftovers. And she calls him Lord. She gets it. Jesus says, yep, you get it. The only one to address him as Lord is a Gentile and a woman. And that is a mighty message of the inclusiveness of God in itself. We can't get hung up on Jesus calling her a dog when Mark is intentionally in this account given the most insight to a Gentile woman. So we've had an exalted Jewish male leader and a lowly Gentile woman needing Jesus to heal their daughters. It's beautiful. God is no respecter of persons. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Thank you, Jesus. You restore, you heal. Verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment and they begged him to lay his hand on him. A deaf and mute man. This is the first time we have this kind of miracle and there is a significance here with idols. Now, obviously idols are false gods that neither hear prayers nor speak. Psalm 115 verse 4 and on. But their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see, they have ears but cannot hear, etc. Psalm 135 has basically the same stanza in its poetry. And then in the prophetic book of Isaiah, when the Lord is calling Isaiah, the Lord says, go and say to these people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Sound familiar? Mark 4, anybody? Make their ears heavy, etc. So verse 33, and, and taking him aside from the crowd privately, why? Well, perhaps he didn't want to be made king in this context. 
The whole vein of Mark, one would argue, is about cross-bearing discipleship. The demons are quick to point out power, but Jesus wants everyone to know that following him, knowing who he is, also means taking part in his suffering, which is why the human acknowledgement of who he is happens at the foot of the cross. Verse 33b, he put his finger into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. Spit was given a healing value, which is in many sources in the Greek world, but also what would happen with idols is that they would be made and then anointed. We saw that with the 12 being sent out and taking the oil. Well, Jesus is the oil. He anoints the ears and the tongue and restores the image of God in this man. He doesn't need oil. He is the oil. Check this out in Isaiah 35. This is beautiful. And the blind eye shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped, etc. Talking about the Lord coming. The Lord's here. <laughs> Isaiah 29. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of the book and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. And that is what is happening. Verse 34. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said, Ephapha. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I feel like I've got a speech impediment now. Ephapha. Ephapha. I don't know. Um, that is, be opened. So looking up to heaven, he sighed, said this word. That means be opened. It's very um, ironic. That's uh, interesting that the word that I had so much trouble saying means open up. <laughs> Some versions say deep sigh, and, and this potentially speaks of the deep desire in the heart of God to see all things restored to their true identity and image. Gives us a hint of what Paul talks about, all creation groaning, our bodies growing, and the spirit groaning, everything waiting for redemption. Paul also in 2 Corinthians, the one above was Romans 8 that deep groaning, but where our tent, our earthly tent is groaning, waiting for immorality, oh no, immortality, not immorality, waiting for immortality to swallow up mortality. I wonder if that is why our bodies get what is known as the death rattles before we die. Our body betrays us just waiting and longing for immortality to swallow it up. As Jesus sighs, it feels like a deep tension between what we were meant to be and what we have become. Verse 35, and his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Well, of course he did, because that's what Jesus does. It's what happened at the beginning when by him all things were created and spoken into existence. So when he says, be open, whatever has been closed, better quickly loosen up. <laughs> uh, verse 36, and Jesus charged them to tell no one. Why? Because Jesus is not about self-glorification. Or he doesn't want it to get out of hand. Remember, he came to this place for some rest. He's not into self-promotion or grand demonstration of power like the magicians of the day, but it's simply about changing lives. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. He has done all things well. Genesis 1.31 God saw all that he had made and it was very good. The end of chapter 7. Stay tuned for chapter 8.